morning, Bethel. So our scripture reading for this morning is in 1 John. So this is a complement to our passage, our study in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so turn to 1 John, and we're going to read a few different verses, but um, I'll, I'll kind of cue you as we go along here. So if you're using a pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew right in front of you, and you can find our text on page 1022. So beginning in 1 John 3, verse 1, and then we'll go to verse 16, and then down to chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, and then finish with 419. Okay, so if you wouldn't mind, please stand and join me. Um, Stand in honor of God's word and follow along as I read here. 1 John 3 and 4. You might want to take note that this first word is a command. It's a really good command. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I'll skip down to verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now I'll skip down to 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy God's righteous wrath that we deserve. Jesus took it in our place. That's what propitiation means. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then skip down to verse 19, and we'll finish there. We love because he first loved us. You may be seated. All right, so if you haven't been with us, um, we are going through this series on 1 Corinthians, and the series is called Cruciform Living. Because at the heart of this book um, is a church in Corinth that's very much shaped by worldly values, kind of the cultural values at large around them, and not enough by the priorities, the values of the cross of Christ. And so Paul is regularly showing them that they need to be shaped by the cross, shaped by the cross of Christ, the grace of the gospel, um, the love of that is ultimately displayed by Jesus on the cross in the way that they interact as a church. Um, and so we also need the same thing. We can so easily kind of drink in the values of the world around us and be more shaped by that than by the gospel. And so we need to be shaped and live cruciform lives as we follow our cruciform Savior. So there's all these problems in Corinth in relation to spiritual gifts, and we see this in chapters 12 to 14, this section that we're looking at. We started last week. We'll finish it, Lord willing, next week. And there must have been an elevation of certain gifts over others 
um, like this hierarchy. These are greater than those, okay? And the problem was their motivation was selfish or prideful. So thinking that certain kind of flashier gifts meant that you were more spiritual. So as a result, you can imagine how the church was fractured along lines of the haves and the have-nots in relation to spiritual gifts. You can imagine how this kind of dynamic could, on the part of some, produce inferiority complexes and jealousy. And then, on the other hand, in the lives of others, a superiority complex and arrogance maybe looking down on and judging, and you have these factions and the fracturing of the body rather than the unity and the building up of the body. So Paul makes it so clear that every spiritual gift is given by God. It's a gift, nothing we can boast in. And God himself arranges the members in the body, each one as he chooses, and he does so for a purpose, for the common good, the building up of the body. So it's love that has to animate the exercise of the gifts and govern the use of the gifts, or there's going to be all kinds of friction and heat. So you could look at these three chapters, chapter 12 about the gifts, chapter 14 about the exercise of the gifts. Love is in the middle. It's like the grease between the gears to keep friction and heat from being produced as the gifts are exercised. So love is at the center of this section, and it's at the center of our study this morning. So there's lots of ideas of what love is in our culture, right? Do you have a working definition of love? Seems like that would be pretty important, seeing as the whole Old Testament, when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you type in, you know, definition of love, you're going to get something like this a strong feeling of affection. Is that a good definition of love? Or, second one is a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. So, is it a feeling? Remember what Jesus said, love your enemies? Is it an action? Does emotion matter? Okay, so we need the Bible to shape. We need to make sure that God shapes our definitions and certainly the definition of love. And he gives us a lot of help in this section in chapter 13 um, to describe what it is, what it looks like. So we first, as we dive into this section, we're going to catch a little bit of context, okay, the last verse of chapter 12, and then we're actually going to try to make it through 1420. So don't worry, we're going to go really fast through 14, 1 to 20, okay? But you'll see why in a few minutes here, okay? So first thing, we need to see how Paul brings chapter 12 to a close, and it leads in naturally to chapters 13 and 14. So there's an outline in your bulletin, or you can follow along on the screen here um, with the points as they go along if that's helpful for you. So first, the gifts and love. What's the connection Look at verse 31 of chapter 12, and you see that connection first off, heading into chapter 13. He says, after he's listed all these gifts and talked about um, where they come from and, and their use, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts or the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent or superior way. So first off, note that we are actually commanded to pursue, to seek, 
to desire certain spiritual gifts. Does that strike you as odd? Like, wait a second, I thought the Holy Spirit decided which gifts I get. Yes, and you can seek spiritual gifts. Okay, so the fact that the gifts are sovereignly distributed according to the will of God, the Spirit, by the Spirit, does not mean that we can't desire or pursue additional gifts. Okay? So in chapter 12, Paul wrote, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. But 1231 is true also. Look down at chapter 14. He repeats this twice. This idea. Look at 14.1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then down at verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So it's a both and, not an either or. Now, that doesn't mean that our spiritual gift set is always in flux or that we're always going to gain more and more and more gifts. But I think we can say that your present gift set is not necessarily static for life. When you are seeking the building up of the body, the Lord may, in his sovereign love and wisdom, give you an additional gift to meet those needs. There can be different seasons, different contexts, different needs, and different gifts. So, Why is Paul saying this? It seems that Paul is discipling the Corinthians very much like Jesus discipled the disciples in Mark 10. Do you remember when the disciples wanted greatness? They wanted to be at Jesus' right and left hand. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, you shouldn't want to be great. He instead redefined greatness. Remember that? He said, here is true greatness to be the servant of all. So he's doing the same thing. Paul is doing the same thing here. The Corinthians wanted the higher life, the great superior path and power. So Paul shows them the superior, excellent way, and it's the way of love, of other-centeredness. So he's reshaping their categories. So True superiority, true excellence doesn't come from establishing yourself as better or higher or greater than others. It doesn't come from having flashier, more impressive, greater gifts, knowing more, having greater displays of spiritual power. It comes from loving well, from being other-centered and building them up. So, and that was the same dynamic that characterized our Lord Jesus' other-centered use of, of his gifts while on earth. So this is cruciform love, absolutely central to cruciform living. Okay, so what is this more excellent way? What's it like? In, in 13, 1 to 8, we see both the necessity of love and the nature of love. So let's first look at its necessity in verses 1 to 3. Okay, so Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, if you're familiar with chapter 14, the Corinthians, I've said it already briefly, they way overvalued the gift of tongues. Okay, so there were other cults at the time which boasted, like pagan religions that boasted of ecstatic spiritual experience. So that was their world. 
And the gift of tongues was like this ecstatic experience, so you can see why they thought so highly of it. But tongues, understood by no one, helped no one. It's worthless. So Paul says that even if he could speak in angelic tongues, if he didn't have love, he's just an annoying, grating noise. That's it. Verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, so super wise, super spiritual power, if I have those things and I have not love, I am nothing. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We, we shouldn't blow by this one too quickly. I think oftentimes we view the most mature Christian as the one who knows the most. And knowledge is important. We want to know God, don't we, right? But we can sometimes be impressed with people who have the answers or those people who have radical faith and powerful things happen. And again, these aren't mutu- they don't have to be mutually exclusive categories. But Paul says that if you're one of those people and you don't have love, it, it doesn't mean that it's just, well, a personality issue or it's not your strength or you, you need to grow a little bit in the love category. It means I am nothing. I'm not somebody, like, even though people might be impressed with me. I'm not something. I'm nothing. That's how necessary love is. And if that's not enough, look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see how radical the necessity of love is? You can give away all your possessions to the poor. You can even be a martyr. And if you do it without love, from pride, self-righteousness, in order to justify yourself, it gains you nothing. You can be a martyr and go to hell. That's how necessary love is. So D.A. Carson summed this up and he said, the divine mathematics here are five minus one equals zero. You guys awake? Okay, one, two, three. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, prophetic powers, faith, give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned, minus one, no love, zero. So there's something else that we need to uh, notice here. You've maybe heard, and this is maybe starting to get at definition of love. You maybe heard it said, maybe you're somebody who talks this way as well. Love is a verb. Anybody? Amen? Okay. So in other words, love is not words, words, words. You know, emotions come and go up and down. You know, they're unreliable. It's action. Put your money where your mouth is, right? So you have to do love, not just talk about it or feel it. Okay, so fair enough. The Bible talks that way. 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But love is not merely a verb. It is not merely an action. Do you see that that's very clearly the implication of these first three verses? Because you can do a lot of action and not have love. So it's not equated with action. 
It can't be. There's got to be something prior, which shouldn't surprise us. Remember Romans 5.8? God demonstrates his love. The action is the demonstration of something in God prior to the action. So that's got some serious implications for us. We need to be shaped by the gospel, not merely at the level of our actions, but also at the level of our loves and our affection. We need to guard our affections. We need to seek God's grace for the ordering of our loves, not just the duty of our actions. That is necessary, not optional. So love God with all you are and have. Love your neighbor, even your enemy, as yourself. So love is this, what is it? It's this disposition, it's this will, this desire that has the good of another in view. So it is both affectional, there's a desire and a will, and if you have that true desire, it will necessarily issue forth in action for the good of the other. So, now on to the description, the nature. So that's the necessity of love. Absolutely necessary. It's not optional for Christians. What's the nature of love? Verses 4 to 7 are not so much a definition as they are a description, right? And obviously, I think we all know this, and we hear this one most often at weddings, but this isn't just a marriage text. It certainly has clear application in a Christian marriage or in a marriage with a Christian, a um, Christian who is married. But also, as we walk through this, do you see how this is mainly aimed at the way we relate to one another in the church, the way we use our gifts, the way that we build each other up. So it's all of our relationships and interactions in the church that's at focus as far as this love that ought to characterize our community dynamics. So what is love, the nature of it, verses 4 to 7? Look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. I think we're all going to be like really convicted this morning, so that's okay. God's gracious. Hang in there. It's so good for us to just look in the mirror, be honest with ourselves, and then we're going to hear the gospel and be encouraged, and so just hang in there, but don't, don't, don't cringe. Love is patient and kind. So do you see how impatience in your heart, seeing it around you as well, sometimes it's easier to see it in others than we see it in our own hearts, but impatience or harshness, the opposite of patience and kindness, it's selfish. It's prideful. When you're not patient and kind, you think too highly of yourself and too lowly of others. You have a superiority complex, which is just what Paul was hammering at in chapter 12. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The gospel calls us to Put that pride and selfishness to death, cruciform living, so that love grows. So it is the cruciform love of God in Christ that teaches and enables us to love others. 
So we can love. We can be patient and kind because he first loved us unloving people, us selfish, prideful people. He loved us patiently, kindly. Oh, man, how patient and kind he's been with us. Oh, man, how patient and kind he's been with us. That's the engine that drives this. That's what creates this. The gospel creates this. The cross, the love perfectly, ultimately displayed on the cross is what creates this love within us. We can love because he first loved us. So if we are not patient and kind, we have totally lost sight of the gospel, of the cross. Or maybe we're not a Christian in the first place, and if that's the case, it's an invitation to come to Jesus, to know this love, and then be filled up with it so that you can share this love. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Like you got to think of your own life here. Like, oh, aren't we just like so spring-loaded to jealousy and envy and looking around and must be nice and uh, just betrays our emptiness. Love does not envy or boast. No room for inferiority, envy, superiority, boasting. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. What do we have that we didn't receive? That kills the boasting. And we are all equally acceptable and accepted by God through the work of Christ. We're justified by grace through faith in Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've got no reason to envy anybody because we have God. If we've got him, we've got everything. No need to envy, no reason to boast. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. So if you look down on and treat others roughly, rudely, once again, you're doing that from a place of supposed superiority. You're treating them as an inferior. That needs to be put to death by the truth of the gospel. Okay, flip back to 1 Corinthians 1, how he started this book. 126. And just this is like a gospel smart bomb to blow up their supposed superiority. But it's also intended to secure them and fill them with confidence and grace. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. No reason for arrogance or rudeness because there's just no reason for anything but humility and security. We've been chosen. So love does not insist on its own way. As he goes on here, once again, there is the way of selfishness and pride or there is the cruciform way of love, other-centered and humble. Love 
Christian love, gospel love, refuses to believe, refuses to believe that I am higher, smarter, wiser, better, more important than you. And because of all those things that are true of me, you therefore must do it my way. Love counts others more significant than itself precisely because that's exactly what Jesus did when he did not count his divine prerogatives as rights to be held on to for his own advantage. Instead, he willingly laid those rights aside in order to love and serve and save us. So it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Oh, man. We are, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking for myself. We are so guilty of this. Irritable. How he just gets on my nerves. These people. I shouldn't have to be bothered like this. Again, we just think so highly of ourselves. We think too little of others. We're so easily irritated. Love is not easily provoked that way to irritation. But we sure are. (laughs) And when we are, we withhold people that we disdain. Right? If you are irritated with someone, are you just wanting to love on them? No. The gospel teaches us a better way. Brothers and sisters, how could God respond to you and me? If anybody's got a right to be irritated, like, are you kidding me? You are about as thick and slow to learn, like, you again, about this again? He's not like that. You know, Jesus is on earth. He's like, people just keep coming to him, coming to him. They're trying to, like, use him as a tool to get what he wants. He's like, sheep without a shepherd. You know, he teaches them. Even the Pharisees are trying to corner him, and he's giving them, he's calling them out, but giving them an opportunity to repent. Oh, what a right God has to be irritated by us, and yet he is so long-suffering, and he has so much persevering compassion on us. So love is not irritable or resentful. Resentful, other translations, it keeps no record of wrongs. So Christian love doesn't keep score. We really have to kill that, don't we? It's cruciform living. You got to kill that in your marriage. You got to kill that in your family. You got to kill that at work in, in the church. Why aren't other people keeping the same hours? What, you know, why aren't they serving as much as me? Come on. Like when we accepted Jesus, we rejected the meritocracy, right? We, we don't want the world to work that way because if we get what we deserve, we're in trouble. Do you want God to keep score with you? Has God kept score with you? Is his love calculating No, he's not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He's cast our sin as far away from us as the east is from the west. So here's the cool thing. This is maybe some good news here. If you're feeling particularly convicted like me, this morning, as you look at these descriptions of love and maybe how far short you fall, our very conviction this morning of our lack of love recently, 
could serve our growth in love leading out of this morning. Here's what I mean. If you see, for instance, how irritable and resentful you are, fill in the blank on the other descriptions, then you just might see a little more this morning, a little more clearly, how not irritable, resentful God has been toward you. And when you grasp a little bit more how sinful you've been, how gracious He's been, you're a little more blown away by how loving He's been to you, and you're humbled and filled with this gospel gratitude, and you find your fuse starts to get longer, and the resentment melts away because you're focused on how God has dealt with you. You see what I'm saying? Please help me here. You tracking with that? Okay. So we love. We will be enabled to love. We, we do love because he first loved us. We will be enabled to love as we are under the sway of his love for us. We can't lose sight of it. We really need, brothers, just to live in the conscious awareness and appreciation of the love of God for us. That's the power for living this way, this cruciform life. Verse 6, he goes on, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So love loves truth and rejoices in it. Selfishness and pride, the opposite, rejoices more in its own gain, even if it's at the expense of justice, because it's selfish and opportunistic. Love rejoices with the truth, even if it's more personally costly. And then Paul closes out this description of the nature of love in verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you're in a situation with people who are hard to love, you might push back on this section. seems a little too, like, <laughs> kidding me? Because this is really pushing us to not be minimalistic with our love. Love bears all things. It bears whatever it needs to bear in the interests of others. It, like, so in other words, it's not like, well, I'll give this much, but no more, and then I'm out. It believes all things. Love is not cynical, folks. Love is certainly not gullible. It's wise, but it refuses to give way to cynicism. It wants to give the benefit of the doubt. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know how, man, spring-loaded we are not to operate that way with others? So wanting to give the benefit of the doubt is not naive. It's humble and hopeful because God's in the equation. Are you tracking with me? Help me here. I, I'm not saying that because I need strokes. I'm like really wanting to make sure we get this because this is so practically important to day-to-day -day life. So do you tend to look for faults and reasons to say gotcha? The people around you? Do people feel that way around you? Then guess what? You must feel like that's how God relates to you. That's not how he is. That's not who he is. So do you see, if you are under the sway, if you are appreciating and like blown away with how kind merciful and loving God has been to you, the reflex will be the way that you deal with others. But if you think God is like, step out of line, he's going to zap me. 
you're going to be that way with others. So he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So what place does nitpicking and gotcha have in the family of this God? Love hopes all things. The next one. Christian love. Again, this is so practical. Christian love is optimistic. And it's buoyant. Not because we have hope in ourselves, but because we have hope in God. God's in the equation. Love doesn't throw up its hands or throw in the towel. It doesn't say, you're hopeless. It doesn't say, this is hopeless. It hopes all things. Always. Because God's in the equation. It also endures all things. We can have such a, again, calculating, this much and no more approach to ministry with people. I'll bear as much burden as I want no more. Again, so good that God is not minimalistic with us, calculating with us, endures all things. So we so often give up in our relationships in the church because we're too much shaped by the values and the expectations of the world and not enough by the grace, the love that's encapsulated in the gospel. So we need the cruciform love of Jesus to shape and strengthen us so that we embrace this maximalist, optimistic, buoyant, persevering way of love. It's the better way, the most excellent way. And it's this love that's got to animate and govern the exercise of our spiritual gifts in the church, okay? So point number three, love and the gifts. Now, I know this is a really big section here, okay? And I'm not going to take time this week to deal with all the controversial issues concerning prophecy and tongues and how or if they function today, okay? We're going to hit a few of those questions, but mostly leave them to next week, okay? This morning, what we want to do is make sure that we don't lose sight of the big picture point that Paul's making and how it all ties together, that love must govern the use of all the gifts. So that's the main point. So don't lose sight of that as we go through this um, large section. I'm not going to make, I'll probably make more comments on the end of chapter 13 and not too many comments on the first 20 verses of 14, but at least we'll be familiar with this section and see how it all hangs together, okay? So look at verse 8. It ends the description of love. Love never ends. It never fails. But then there's a contrast. The gifts, however, they will end. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. In other words, main point, love is greater. It's not temporary. It's eternal. These gifts that the Corinthians valued so highly at the expense of love, they're all lesser and inferior to love. Love is the superior, the better, excellent way. So if we don't get that, we miss the point. Love is the purpose of the gifts, to build up the body in love, and love outlasts the gifts. So love is the purpose of the gifts, and love outlasts the gifts. So it's better in both senses. You see it? So the Corinthians wanted the higher life, the super spiritual life. Love is the higher way, the higher life, the most excellent way. So now he's going to explain the temporariness of these gifts. Verse 9. For, so prophecies are going to pass away, tongues are going to cease, knowledge it will pass away. For, 
we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So what's the perfect and when does it come? You see the connections there? The in part, in part, partial, pass away. Prophecies are going to pass away. Knowledge is going to pass away. See the connections here? It all hangs together. So Paul then draws on a well-worn metaphor known in the time to describe this transition of partial to complete, partial to full. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So the difference between childhood and manhood is not small. It's significant. There is a decisive transformation such that childish ways are given up when you become a man. And so also when the perfect comes. Look at where he goes in verse 12. Because, let me tell you what I mean and why I'm saying it, because now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the partial passes away, when the perfect comes, then face to face. Now I know in part. You see, there's that in part of verses 9 and 10 again. Then, I'm sorry, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So when are those nows and when are those thens? Are you paying attention? I know it's warm in here, but you got to track. When are the nows? The nows are between the first and second coming of Jesus. And the then is when we see Jesus face to face. This language here in verse 12, then face to face, that is like technical language in the Old Testament for a theophany. Well, the return of Christ is when we will see God face to face. So now we know in part through a mirror dimly or a glass darkly, then, when all things are made new in the resurrection, when Jesus returns, we will know fully even as we are fully known. So there is nothing in this text to say that prophecies, tongues, or knowledge will pass away before Jesus returns. Okay? You can conclude that from other considerations, but I don't believe that you can conclude that from this text. Okay? So, verse 13, so now... Faith, hope, and love abide or remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There's an old hymn that says, Faith will vanish into sight, hope be emptied in delight, love in heaven will shine more bright. Okay, so Paul then now immediately applies this to their situation. Okay, look at 14.1. Pursue love. So we started out with the gifts and love, 1231, and then he talks about love, and now he's going to talk about love and the gifts. See how it all hangs together? So pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Why earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy? Again, we're going to leave off what is prophecy till next week, okay? But... At this point, the point is so you can do as much good as possible. 
so you can build up the body of Christ. So now he takes aim at their overvaluation of tongues, okay? Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So how can you build someone up if they don't understand you? On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So again, whatever prophecy is, we'll leave that to next week, here are the purposes of it, right? Very clearly. Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Interesting. He knows that they're not all going to speak in tongues because remember at the end of chapter 12, he said, do all speak in tongues? No. But he actually thinks this is a good thing. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Because again, that is the governing purpose, building up love. Okay, so once again, greater is defined by what does the greater good for the church and her benefit. So do you see how important it is, or it was for Paul, that he first established love as the higher, greater, more excellent way before he makes statements like this about one gift being greater than another? Do you see that? Because otherwise, it could feed the very problem that they have, their pride and selfishness that creates this hierarchy. He says the only reason there's a hierarchy is that certain gifts do more good for the body. So if you're governed by love, then you can pursue those higher gifts, not for your own sake, but for the good of the body. Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Again, tongues without interpretation does no good to the body. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said for you will be speaking into the air? Okay, so the reason that Pentecost, remember when, when apostles, the, the disciples there spoke in tongues and all these people that were gathered there heard the wonders of God being spoken in their own languages? It was edifying to them. It built them up because they heard this good news in their own language. They understood it. But if it's not intelligible, then you're just speaking into the air. So verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So if Alex came up and started preaching in Indonesian, we love him. We could probably even see some passion. but We have no idea what he's talking about. So with yourselves, since you are eager or zealous for the manifestations of the Spirit, that was obvious in Corinth, strive to excel in building up the church. That's what you really ought to be zealous for, is the building up of the church. Is that what you, brothers and sisters, is that what you're zealous for, the building up of this body? Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. I know all this is so controversial. 
We'll touch on some of these things next week, but I want you to see the big picture and how it's all making the same point that we've been considering. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider or someone who's ungifted in this way say amen to your thanksgiving if they don't understand when he doesn't know what you're saying? Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Again, love seeks to build up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue because it's not going to do anyone else any good. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Selfish, childish. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. All right, so... If love and the building up of others doesn't govern your use of your gifts, then you are childish and immature. That's what Paul's saying. So we need to grow up and be shaped by the cross, not by our selfishness or pride. So Once again, the key is this cruciform love of God in Christ, empowering us, activating us, shaping us, governing our cruciform love for others. Okay, so we close considering cruciform love, capital C and L, Jesus's, and our cruciform love, lowercase c and L, our, the way we live. Just very practically, simply, are you actively using your gifts for the building up of this body? Or are you withholding them? And if you're withholding them, why? Is it selfish? Are you zealous for the building up of this body? Where is your love? What are your motives in using your gifts? And for all of us, where does this cruciform love, this use of gifts for the building up of the body, where does it come from? When, I'm, when I don't feel like it, where does it come from? We love and we can love because he first loved us. We give our gifts for the good of others because God has so graciously and generously and abundantly given us his grace by giving us his son. We love, we can love because he first loved us. So if we're not using our gifts to love our brothers and sisters in concrete, practical ways, have we lost sight of God's love for us in Christ? So back to the scripture reading. See, behold what love the Father has given to us that we, we should be called sons of God. If we're sons of God, that means we're heirs. Everything is ours. What love the Father has given to us that we, we rebellious sinners who deserve his judgment, we should be called sons of God. And when we get our eyes fixed on that, when we see that, then we will gladly walk the way, the more excellent way, the way of cruciform living for the good of others, following our cruciform Savior who gave his life for our good. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that according to the riches of your glory that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love would be able to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In his name, amen.